Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. It's July 26. Rates have eased. Recession woes haven't and credit market unease and volatility are becoming the new normal. I'm Rob Schiffman, and welcome to this month's Bloomberg Intelligence Credit Chat Podcast. With us to provide the answers to some of BI's most asked questions are a slew of our global all-star analysts, including our grand poobah and head of global fixed income credit research, Joel Levington, plus our colleagues from halfway around the world via Hong Kong, Dan Fan, and Preeta Silva. Joel's going to walk us through what industrials are most at risk of downgrades and potential M&A scenarios for a variety of issuers, while Dan will take a deeper dive into China's real estate market and property risks, and Pri will discuss the potential for a banking crisis in China and the wonderful world of airline lease financing. Welcome, everyone. Hello, Joel. Robert, always good to see you. Ah, great to see you. So you recently wrote a report about what seemingly is a massive amount of downgrade risk in the industrial bond space, $156 billion of risk. One is, could you put in context, is, is that really a lot? It sounds like a big number, but has it been much bigger in the past or much smaller? And then maybe walk us through what a, what a recessionary style scenario might look like. Um, and obviously with, with, a, with a big list of, of potential downgrades, you know, what, which names are really most at risk of, of downgrade? Sure. Well, I mean, relative to my bank account, 156 billion is a lot. I, I know to yours, it's not that much, but um, it's tip money for me. <laughs> but what I would say uh, in the world of, of industrials is that the focus, to your point, has turned towards re recession. Right, and on the terminal, I think there's a 40 percent probability of a recession uh, happening in the next 12 months. Uh, that keeps going up, and so we did some analysis. Is there a simple way for? For terminal users to look up that number? There totally is, Rob, and I'm glad that you mentioned it. If you use the ECFC function, so ECFC Go will take you to the probability of default as, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, the probability of a recession as determined by uh, global economists. So, uh, so you I'm have glad that. You had that. We didn't rehearse that one. Folks, that's so that's, that's right that off the answer. cup. <laughs> well done, though. <laughs> well, played, well played. Well played. So, yeah, so, uh, you know, when it came to the industrials, we took a look at, you know, like, what does that mean if a recession happens? Now, historically, uh, industrials decline in revenues about 15 to 17% uh, from uh, the peak to the first year of a, of a downturn. And obviously, those that have uh, exposure to more cyclical sectors like energy or automotive, aerospace and mining, they're more susceptible to be greater than that. So the analysis that we put out essentially looked company by company at the different subsectors to get a sense of who would be most exposed in a downturn. Uh, the, answer that, uh, the answers that came up were names like General Electric, 3M, Illinois Toolworks, and Volunteer uh, would be most susceptible. And of course, GE and 3M are two of the largest issuers in the industrial world. So while the $156 billion sounds a lot in terms of absolute dollars, uh, you're really talking about two companies accounting for about half of that amount as being the, uh, the, bigger, the biggest uh, triggers to uh, ratings downgrades in a, in a downturn. Yeah, you know, in, in, in my space, there's a little over 100 billion of tech names that, uh, that have downgrade risk. 
but 75% of that is one name in Oracle. So it does certainly seem concentrated in yours as well. For sure, for sure. Uh, well, you know, you mentioned 3M. There's a whole bunch of environmental and product liabilities, and you've been talking all about this separation. It's been on, uh, on top what, what seems like the last few weeks and just getting billions of clicks. Could you just walk us through uh, what's going on with that story? You know, why would a separation make sense? How does it help or hurt? And, you know, for obviously for our credit folks out there, what does it mean for credit? Sure. Well, in the case of 3M, you know, they basically have two main issues. One are their PFAS liabilities or their environmental liabilities or dumping chemicals into water. The other is a product liability issue. They sold lots of earplugs that didn't actually uh, help ears out. And of course, they sold that to the military. And, uh, you know, like there's recourse to that. Now, our great team at BI uh, includes a litigation analyst and Holly Frome, who uh, covers 3M from the litigation standpoint, uh, estimates that those liabilities could be worth $45 billion, uh, which is a huge amount. They've uh, reserved about $890 million. So for, uh, so for our analysis, we always do like what if scenarios and what does this mean and how can you make this work? Now, the thing I would say for shareholders is that the stock has underperformed the S&P 500 by 96% over the past five years. So shareholders need something. Bondholders have a very, very high rating at A1, A+. So they have the ability to kind of fund some of these issues, but certainly not all of them. So the analysis that we came up with was to say, hey, 3M should separate its healthcare business. Now, why? Because it's the only business that's not integrated into their pure um, uh, chemistry uh, work that they do with their other industrial businesses. If they did that, one, they would be able to separate and get a much higher multiple uh, on the healthcare business than 3M itself is getting. Two, some of those businesses have lots of optionality, like your uh, folks over at Oracle, right? They just bought Cerner. It was a huge deal, right? I think it was at a 21 times multiple. 3M trades at a nine times multiple. So, you know, separating healthcare creates some opportunity for shareholders to get value through that. On the credit side, if you do that, uh, our analysis was uh, if you levered the business to two and a half times, uh, the 3M would be able to pull in about $15 billion of liquidity to help start funding some of these potential liabilities down the road uh, and really focus the attention on liquidity and this new asset that they're generating and change the narrative for their story. Now, as it turns out, Rob, again, we didn't plan this. Uh, I put the note out yesterday, uh, today on the 26th, 3M actually just announced uh, this morning that they are spinning off the healthcare business. So, uh, you know, like that might be a little bit of dumb luck on our side, but the analysis is actually very much in line with how the company is spinning off the healthcare business. Well, I think you uh, might be the new Karnak of <laughs> credit uh, event risk because I think you were probably the first one out talking about a split up of, of GE well in advance. Now 3M uh, right on the spot. So it, it appears as if you're targeting another name in, in Danaher. Mm -hmm. There's um, seems to be a case you're making for either they write a big check for somebody uh, or perhaps they split up uh, similar to 3M. And what direction do you think they might go in? And also what would that imply? Yeah, Danaher is a, is a tremendous company that has an enormous amount of financial flexibility, uh, mainly because it generates 35% EBITDA margins and has uh, CapEx to sales at about 2%. So it spits out about $7 billion of free cash flow every year, uh, and with a, a revenue base of about 75% being reoccurring, 
Um, it's a very steady uh, set of cash flow. Uh, they are a serial acquirer. They uh, tend to lever to delever, and they can do that rapidly given the cash flow dynamics that we were just talking about. Um, now, they do have an environmental business, which is uh, an industrial unit, which really doesn't belong uh, baked inside of a healthcare company. So that we talk to that, and people love that kind of business because it's a really great pure play water uh, infrastructure play that has great ESG characteristics around it. But my guess is they will pursue a larger acquisition. And to that effect, uh, our analysis tells us like they have about $40 billion of debt capacity to do something, which would be pretty close to the largest deal in the history of MedTech. I think you'd have to look at Medtronic uh, and Tyco Healthcare as being the, uh, the largest deal to date. But they could do that and still have a, a legitimate shot of uh, remaining in the A category uh, at S&P, which is uh, a phenomenal amount of debt capacity for a company of that reading class. Okay. Yeah. I mean, listen, maybe with all these prescient calls, you could, uh, you know, let me know if the Mets are going to dominate the Yankees tonight. Or, <laughs> you know, put a couple of peanuts on that. Well, thank you so much. Like, let's move on from uh, the world of potential event risk to what just seems to be a world of risk. Um and talk about real estate and banking systems in China. Uh, welcome, Dan Fan. How are you? I'm good. Uh, yeah, how are you, Rob? Oh, Fan, never, never been better. Um, listen, maybe, maybe before we get into a couple specifics, you know, for those who are listening, I think particularly in the U.S., you know, we sort of just read about uh, how bad the China real estate market is. Could you just give us sort of a fifty thousand view to start off with? Like, what, what are the major issues? What are the big concerns? Um, and, and in general, is this like an avalanche that's uh, uh, about to continue to come crashing down? Um, or is the news, at least that's being filtered over here, a, a little bit overblown at this point? And uh, broadly speaking, we, we can kind of like separate the, um, the question into two parts. Uh, one is on the fundamental side. Um, so meaning we probably talk about uh, the sales situation in China and also um, yeah, the ability to repay uh, by uh, developers. And then the second portion is more about on the technical side. So meaning um, the availability of the refinancing market uh, versus their maturities. So on the fundamental side, I think um, as we are aware, there's a couple of um, issues. I think the one of the key issues is uh, more about uh, the macroeconomy. So if you look at the latest uh, GDP figure, it's like below 1%. Uh, if for, for a year ago, it's about 5%. So from that perspective, we can kind of like tell uh, the economy is actually slowing down. So there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, so I think that is uh, the fundamental side. And then um, as I yeah, on the policy front, I think the government is trying to uh, cool down the sector. Uh, probably may not be at the best timing. Um, so they started these um, measures um, yeah, near the end of uh, last year uh, by limited fundings available to developers. So that's on the policy side. So on the technical side, because of um, the uh, US uh, interest rate increase, and also because of the um, uh, the risk appetite change uh, in the in the um, China property uh, bond market, 
So the refinancing market is not that available, especially in terms of a dollar bond market. Uh, but at the same time, maturities are coming in um, uh, because we have uh, more maturities uh, coming in in 2022, meaning this year and also next year. So everything kind of combined that we are create, uh, we are creating a kind of like bear market for the sector. Okay. Okay. So help me out a little bit. I, I, I'm reading a lot about, you know, a, a, a potential mortgage boycott. Um, could, could you just, could you just let us know what does that really mean? Are, are banks just shutting down to new development? And if there is going to be some sort of boycott, um, uh, what would the impact be on developers? Yeah, maybe I just um, talk a little bit about the, <clears throat> the definition of boycott. So in China, we do like uh, everything in pre-sale. So meaning once you pay down your deposit, you apply for a mortgage, uh, you get it approved, and then the bank will distribute the money directly to the developer. So basically the bank will make full payment to the developer. And then the buyer will make installment uh, until, uh, yeah, they will keep paying installment. And then uh, maybe two years later, they will get delivery of the apartment. So it's all on a pre-funded basis. The boycott means um, some developers, they, they, may, they may be in financial difficulty. They are not really able to continue building their projects. So when the buyers find out, oh, my apartment is not under construction, they threaten to not pay in installments to the mortgage bank. And yeah, so this is like what the yeah, boycott means uh, yeah, in, in, in China. I mean, um, so the impact is definitely like negative, uh, although the actual impact is more limited to the distressed developers. So meaning the developers who, who might have defaulted on these dollar bonds and onshore bonds, uh, like uh, maybe Evergrande, maybe Sunnet. Um, so as a result, I think new home buyers, they tend to buy from state-owned developers or they buy from secondary market. They are really able to buy physical instead of like uh, prepay. Um, because I think why people want to buy via prepayment is um, the price is controlled by the government the, and the price is usually cheaper. If they buy in the secondary market, uh, the price is uh, based on market forces, meaning that they may be higher than what you can get in at the primary market. So you mentioned refinancing, you know, in, 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 in the dollar market, uh, USIG is is sort of uh, moving sideways after a few big years of, of issuance. High yield, though, is down dramatically, um, and even level loans are down dramatically. We're seeing, you know, a new wave of financing mechanisms via private credit. You know, how are your names going to work their way through refinancing, especially in the Kung Fu bond market, if public debt markets seem to be shut? Um, yeah, to be honest, there, there are not many alternatives available. So like stronger developers like, like Wanky, uh, Longfall, they, they are still able to raise funds from the onshore market and they don't have uh, many 
Kung Fu bonds coming due. So they may kind of like uh, muddle through uh, in the process. So weaker de developers like um, Agile, they may need to sell asset to raise cash. That's another way of um, getting some kind of like uh, refinancing or paying down their debt. And some developers like uh, Guangzhou RNF, they might have to extend the maturities of their Kung Fu bonds, uh, which they did uh, recently. And then they, they, they try to enhance the structure by reinventing some of their offshore projects just to get support uh, from the Kung Fu bondholders. And then, I mean, extension in a sense uh, could be considered as refinancing in this kind of situation, but they just refinance from the same group of investors. Okay, and no, uh, there's so much to, to get dig into here, but let's 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 try to finish up with one with with one or two more. One is, is there some sort of like bailout? Like, is it, are local governments uh, likely to come in um, and help uh, uh, help developers? And then, you know, are there a few names that you think are at risk of defaulting? And then maybe a couple names that you think stand out in terms of um, uh, have been beaten up too much and represent good value in this market, or are you, are you just negative across the board? I mean, in, in general, I think um, at the current price level, it kind of like assuming majority of the high yield bonds may uh, need to restructure. So in terms of like local government trying to help, I think the key for them is to kind of moderate between the banks and developers. Uh, to ensure the projects are com completed, uh, which is uh, a top priority. I think the key purpose is to avoid social unrest uh, from the angry like home buyers. So, I mean, local government themselves probably they, they can raise on so on to help their own financing. Uh, in the past, they relied quite heavily on land sales to, to plug their budget deficit. Um, there are actually very few examples of local government uh, putting in money directly to support developers. Uh, we have seen like Shenzhen government, they injected capital in China South City, uh, but the developer still needs to request for extension on its Kung Fu bonds. And other example is uh, Henan government, they, has, uh, they have entered into a framework agreement to acquire a state in central China. So I think the, the, the risk um, of these the two developers, I think is more on the extension risk instead of like a, a full-blown uh, debt restructuring. Um, so I think it's a matter of um, the availability of the refinancing market because if the refinancing market is still not available, it would be a matter of time. As we have talked about, more maturities are coming in 2023. So meaning that developer have to use their own cash, burn, I mean, burning their own cash to pay off the, the Kung Fu bonds. So yeah, so this is uh, something we need to uh, really like pay attention to. Thank you so much. Um, now, listen, what's, what's closely aligned with uh, the real estate market, obviously, is the banking market. So 
happy to have you here, Pre, to, to help us through this. How are you? Also, thanks, and let's go Mets, right? There you go. Let's go Mets. Um, so, listen. Probably the the thing I the, the only thing I know less of than about the uh, Chinese real estate market is the Chinese banking system. But you know, if I if I go back in, in the U.S., you know, to 2008, you know, there was a mortgage crisis here that led to uh, a financial crisis, and I, I'm just wondering, you know, is there is is that the sort of path that we're heading down? If there's going to be some sort of mortgage boycott um, and there's this massive property issue, you know, are, are, are we set up for a China banking crisis, um, whether it's uh, similar to what happened in the U.S., uh, you know, a, a decade plus ago or, or not? Right. The short answer is not a system-wide crisis, I believe, uh, and the reason for that is China's banking system is very top-heavy, and all the large banks have adequate amounts of capital right now to withstand a, um, an even a very severe uh, and a severely adverse uh, scenario that we modeled. Uh, but China's banking system comprises of about 4,000 banks, and for many of them, this could be the straw that uh, breaks their back. Um, but if you kind of... Um, take a step back and look at the large banks, there are several factors that uh, mitigate the, the risk um, of a mortgage crisis turning into a banking crisis. One of them is um, the Chinese government drew a line on the sand and said the large state-owned banks um, uh, can have a, 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 it limited their residential mortgage exposure to 40% of do domestic loans. For the smaller private sector banks, they limited it to 27.5%, so even lower. And um, even though this is just a, uh, a guidance, it really kept the exposure of the banks uh, to the real estate sector. That's one. And then um, the second factor here is China has created a system of bad banks, um, and they're called asset management companies, or AMCs, and their role is to house the bad, de uh, the bad debt from the large state-owned banks. So think about them as a overflow tank for bad loans. And the AMCs are not subject to bank regulations, and most of them are majority owned by the state, so the government can pump in um, capital if need be. And um, they're kind of like a um, safety valve for the banking system. And what they do is they free up capital and balance sheet capacity at the banks to absorb more loans and continue lending. What happens to those bad banks? So the, the, the government just guarantees the, those loans or what happens to, to all the bad banks? Um, they don't guarantee uh, they've been bailed out, and we had an instance of uh, a bad bank being bailed out uh, last uh, last year in China Warong. So um, well, uh, they are um, government-owned entities, but uh, the government does not guarantee their debt. Got you. And what about exposure to other sectors? You know, there's a, there's a couple of names that I cover that are super high quality, names like Baba and, and Tencent, um, that, you know, they don't have... They don't have any balance sheet woes. They've got tons and tons of cash. But, but you know, it seems like China, uh, the regulatory environment is not just affecting real estate, right? It's affecting all businesses. Like Dan said, like you've got, we've got negative growth now. Um, is, is there a bigger problem outside of real estate? Like is, 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 are, are there more potential bad loans across industrials that might have to make these, this bad bank exposure much larger or no? 
it, it's possible, and um, especially if the economy starts to slow. And um, if there's a, a slowdown in global growth, there's no way that China's economy um, evades that. And so that's going to have an impact on uh, uh, Chinese corporates, for instance, um, and also the industrial sector. And uh, as a result, uh, yes, credit quality could deteriorate. Um, but uh, I think the, the, the big backstop here, uh, especially for the large uh, state-owned banks, is the central government is the majority owner of the country's six biggest banks that dominate the banking system. Um, so just think about um, Bank of America being owned by the U.S. Treasury, and that can uh, backstop liquidity and capital. Gotcha. Uh, so that's um, that's what happens in China. But uh, the thing to keep in mind is that this luxury is not extended to the thousands of smaller banks that dot uh, the country. Sure. Now, listen, in, in, in terms of the Bloomberg way, are, are there any reds or greens out there that stand out that, uh, you know, people should be worried about in, in your world or, or names from, a, you know, a positive standpoint that um, are really well positioned and, and might, have, might be oversold at this point? Um, the credit spreads of Chinese banks trade very tight uh, compared to global banks. And the reason for that is because the banks are majority owned by the central government and their credit ratings are uh, rated one much below the, uh, the Chinese government's debt. Uh, so because of that, there's very little relative value to be had in Chinese banks. Um, and gotcha. I'll leave it at that. A, sec a sector of yellows, yeah. <laughs> we don't love to write and talk about the yellows. Uh, okay, listen, one more thing. This, this might be an old story already, but you know, I don't think anyone was on top of the airline lease financing story more so than you in the last year. You know, is, is there still something there? You know, I thought there was a lot of exposure to Russia. Um, you know, what's happened? How have things shaked out? Um, and you, again, are there, are you see any opportunities, uh, red or green in that space? Um. Yes, yeah, so that's uh, that's been a very interesting sector. Um, and anytime there's hair in credits, as we call it, um, spreads blow out, and that creates opportunity. And that's exactly where the uh, aircraft leasing companies are right now. The Russia development, I think, was the first half development. Um, most of the the leasing companies have completely written down their exposure to Russian airlines um, and Russia itself. Um, but there's still a revenue story to be told because revenues are still recovering from the pandemic. And also you can throw in the loss of uh, revenues uh, from Russia. So as a result, revenues are under pressure and that's impacting the ratings. Uh, but the credit spreads are trading quite wide compared to um, the rest of the financial space. And I think that's where um, the opportunity lies. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I, I want to thank our best-in-class analysts for joining us. Thank you for listening to our BI Credit Chat podcast. You know, as always, if you need anything from our team, feel free to reach out directly or simply access the credit research dashboard at BI Cred. Stay happy and healthy. Until next month, may your longs be tighter and your shorts wider. Bye-bye.